Happy Father's Day uh, from, a, from a happy father. I uh, had such a good time being a dad. Raising our, our girls was so much fun. Uh, everybody knows if your dad is challenging, but I, I hope if you're in the role that uh, you're fathering as a verb, not just that you're a father, I hope it's a great time. Guys, I'm slowly, very slowly, reading through a large tome, a biography of Winston Churchill. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever get through it. It's that long. But I've enjoyed everything I've read thus far. I've read a shorter biography on Churchill. He's a fascinating figure, kind of a hero for me in many ways. He was such a formative figure in World War II and even before that as well. And, and really his character, his courage, his willingness to draw a line in the sand and say we will not be defeated was just huge for England and really all, all of the West in World War II. The biography I'm reading now, very different from another much shorter biography I read several years ago. They're different lengths, the works are different lengths, but the emphases are different as well. And you know, if, if two or more of us wrote a story or told a story about any individual or a particular time, those stories would all vary because we'll all have our own sense of what was important, our own agenda, what would the key points be that we want to point out to others. So everybody's going to tell the same story a little different, even if the characters are the same, the time or the place is the same. They'll have some common elements, but there will be some that are different, sometimes just because the author thinks a different way, but other times because they have an emphasis in mind, and so they're writing for that emphasis. And this is something you see, by the way, in Scripture. So when you read through the first five books of the Bible, four of those are telling about basically the same event and its immediate aftermath, the Exodus and what immediately follows. But you know that the treatment you get in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy varies greatly. They're all telling about the same roughly period of time, but they're all doing so in very different reason for different emphases. You see the same thing in the New Testament and the Gospels. You know, you got four gospel accounts, four different accounts of the same person and the same time frame. And while there's some similarities, clearly, there's very great dissimilarities as well. And it's because the authors, God through the authors, has a different reason, a different take, so that when you read that different gospel, you're seeing something a little bit different. Well, you've got something similar to that in the Old Testament narratives, the history books as well. So most of us are, if you read the Old Testament, if you know it a little bit, most of us are probably somewhat familiar with First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And so those books, you know, they're basically a history. First Samuel starts with the last of the prophets, the prophet Samuel, but basically it shifts right into the first king, King Saul. You read through, they're basically a straight through narrative. And this is, this is who was living and this is who reigned as king and you get to Judah and you get to Israel and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and the author shows the warts of the heroes and he shows when he can the positives of the villains as well, but it's a fairly straight through rendition of history from about 1100 BC, <clears throat> excuse me, to about 600 BC. Most of us are much less familiar with First and Second Chronicles. But First and Second Chronicles is covering preemptively, it's going all the way back to the beginning of creation, sort of on one hand. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
But otherwise, it's really covering the same period of time. And yet when you read it, you realize that there's some big rock differences between the accounts given in First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And so you immediately ask yourself, what's at play in this? And by the way, this is one of the things we should ask ourselves. Scripture is written with a particular, with God's perspective on things. So when we read something, we should ask ourselves, why did, not just why it happened, or not just why God did something, those are fair questions, but why did he record it, or why did he record it this way? And so when you go from Kings or Samuel and Kings to Chronicles, and you see, man, there's some big changes in this telling, we should ask ourselves, what's at play here? Why is this account in some way so significantly different? And so we'll talk about some of the reasons why First and Second Chronicles are notably different than the other narratives. We're going to be in First Chronicles this morning. Uh, the summer series is Seven Lessons. I mentioned this last week. There's some books of the Bible that if you search Lion and Lamb's messages, they aren't recorded. We don't have messages. So we're going to correct that this summer, God willing. And we're going to cover those books. So we did Leviticus last week. We're doing First Chronicles this week. Uh, Chronicles, if in your Old Testament, and you can get there if open your app or your Bible, uh, comes right after, in the English Bible, it comes right after First and Second Kings. The English Bible, the arrangement of those books is not the same as the Jewish arrangement of those books. So if you pick up a Jewish, their Bible, we, they don't call it the Old Testament, do they? Because they don't believe in a New Testament, a New Covenant. They just say that's their Bible. But when Jesus in the New Testament says all the blood that's been shed in the past from Abel, that's Genesis 4, to Zechariah in the temple, he's saying in all the Old Testament books. Because in the Jewish arrangement of their Bible, our Old Testament, Second Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. The order is different. So in your English Bible, it's right after Kings. In the Jewish Bible, it's the end of the Old Testament. It's 29 chapters long. Its title comes from chapter 27, verse 24, the Chronicles of King David, or the Annals of King David. We're not really sure who wrote this book, before I forget. So with Leviticus, you take a book that you know people avoid. And so you say, here are some ways of understanding Leviticus so that when you read through, more of it makes sense than might have otherwise. And we want to do that this morning with First Chronicles as well. There's a reason people avoid it, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but we, we want to say, uh, what's God got for us in this? And what are some lenses or what are some of the big rocks that help me understand why this book is there or why it's important or what I should be understanding as I read through it? And so we'll, we'll try and do that with First Chronicles this morning. We don't know who wrote it. We know it was written very late in the Old Testament period. And we know that because the chronicler, whoever it is, everybody, they used to say it's Ezra. So Ezra the priest from the book of Ezra, people thought it was popular to say Ezra recorded it. Probably not Ezra, though he may have, may have contributed to it, because, because it includes history beyond Ezra, probably his lifetime. It was written probably around the same time Malachi, the old, last Old uh, Testament book, and we know that because the chronicler includes the names of David's descendants 
in so many successive generations that it looks like it would go at least to the period of Malachi. So we know it's one of the last books written in the Old Testament. We know, too, the author had access to all kinds of information. So this is written in a particular time and place for a particular reason. And the guy that's recording it, he hasn't lived through everything he's recording, but he does have lots of material to draw from. So he not only has the other narrative books, but he has genealogies. And he has chronicles from several prophets, Samuel, Nathan, Gad, Ahijah. He has the visions of Edo. So he's got a lot of written material to draw from as he's putting his version of these events together. Uh, the book starts... Well, I'll pass on that. I'll talk about that in just a minute. So if we say, why, why First and Second Chronicles? Why is it written? Why is it there? So we, we know it's for our benefit because we know the title of this series is All Scripture is Inspired. And it's profitable, so it's profitable for us today. But when it was written, who was the target audience? And what did they need to hear? What, why was this being written then the way it was written? And this is the deal. You know, the Jews had been taken to Babylon in captivity, and they'd been there for 70 years. In about 538, under King Cyrus, he gives them permission to leave Babylon and go back to the land of promise. But you remember when they go back and, and they start in 538 and Ezra and Nehemiah around the 440s or so. So there's, there's about almost a hundred year period that's being recorded through some of these narratives. But as those groups go back, what are they going back to? What are they going back? What does life look like for them? So they've left a foreign land frankly, in which life was pretty comfortable. There's some exceptions, but it was, it was, a, it was like the first world nation of the time, right? Babylon was the, the top of the, the top. And now they're going back to the land that they called home, but what did it look like when they got there? And you remember, it would have been a rubble heap, wouldn't it? Because the Babylonians had destroyed it. They'd not only destroyed the other cities, Jerusalem, the capital, the temple, it was, it was mounds of rubble. So when this group went back, they're glad to go home on one hand, but they are facing a mountain of labor. And when you read the book of Nehemiah, you remember too, they're facing all kinds of challenges and problems. And so guys, for them, life was hard. They're glad to be there on one hand, but it's very difficult, very challenging on the other. The chronicler is writing to encourage them. That in spite of the challenges that we're facing in the day, and in spite of the fact that we, or our parents with us, brought us out of captivity in Babylon, God's still at work. So when Chronicles is written, it's written to encourage this group that's returned that God is still at work. It's got some key things. We'll look at four different emphases in the book, sort of to hang our hat on and to give us an understanding of why it was written this way. But this is a group that needs encouragement because life is a challenge. And so this is written to look at their past and from their past to say, from how God's interacted with us in the past, we can take courage and confidence today. God's still at work in our small group, in our reduced national setting. God is still at work and we can count on that. Uh, Chronicles is going to look back at God's work, particularly his choice and use of David, King David, and his descendants, promises made to David about his sons, 
the priesthood as God's spiritual leaders and the temple as the place that God would meet with his covenant people. And we assume the author of Chronicles was a priest. There's so much, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's so much that is tied to the priesthood in this book that that's a key emphasis and it appears that a priest was the author. So we're going to look at four big rocks, four lenses by which when we read Chronicles, I know you read Leviticus in the last week, I'm confident you'll read First Chronicles this week. And so as you do, these are four lenses, four big rocks you can think of as you read through. The first is the genealogies. The second is warnings. The third is David and the kingly line. And the fourth is the temple and the priesthood. Uh, if you open your Bible to First Chronicles 1 or your app, if I told you, hey, First uh, Chronicles is a great narrative. Uh, it's a story of uh, God's people and you, you went home to read it and you opened your Bible and you started reading it, you'd, you'd think I was ripping you off because you won't read a narrative. So listen to the way uh, Chronicles begins. Right out of the chute, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and off to the races we go. Guys, you got nine chapters of genealogies. Nine chapters of genealogies. And it does, so, you know, Samuel starts with the last judge and then goes into the first kings, but when Chronicles starts, it goes all the way back to Adam. Now, why, why is that significant? So if you're a Jew living in that day, why do you care if Chronicles starts with a genealogy, period, and especially one that goes all the way back to Adam to the very beginning. So if, if your life is tough, it's challenging, and you're wondering where God's at and what's going on, it would be a helpful reminder, would it not, that your God, your God is the God of Genesis 1. That your God created the heavens and the earth. It's your God that put Adam and Eve in the garden. So everything that follows from there, that's your God. So the genealogy going back to Adam reminds this group, the God we love and serve that's in control of our lives, he's the God over every God, he's the power over every power, and we're still living under his aegis, under his rule. So anything that our God wants to do, he can do. And God's purpose is going all the way back. This is the God of creation, Adam and Eve. This is the God of Noah and the flood. This is the God of Abraham. And the promises, you remember these guys are the direct descendants of Abraham. And so to remind them that your, your God and your covenant and your relationship goes right back to the beginning. Gen, uh, Genesis 12 is Abraham. So this is a way to remind them our God, he is the God. And so the promises and the covenants he made with us and our forebears in the past, we can count on him following through on those in our lifetime, even though things don't look grand and glorious, that God, the God all the way back to creation, that's our God. So they start with Genesis and the very beginning for a reason. Now, when I read, if I'm reading my Bible through the Bible, um, guys, I read all the names in all the genealogies. I read all the names in all the genealogies. And uh, sometimes I do that, uh, God wrote it, so I want to honor God by reading what he wrote because all scripture is inspired and is profitable. And also, I think in some ways, God means to honor the people 
whose names are being recorded. And so when I read them, I feel like I'm giving honor to those people God wanted to honor. Now, sometimes the people included are villains. And I think there, the, the villains are often included because those are warnings. And that's, by the way, one of the key themes that you see in this book as well. But we need... <laughs> Have you guys ever been so tired that you're just wondering, Lord, are you still around and what am I doing? Disappointed, uh, life has thrown us for a wreck. You know, in those times, a book like Chronicles that was written to encourage discouraged people, uh, that is an important theme. And when we're worn out or life is confusing or we wonder where is God and why, why is my life looking like this? I thought it'd be different. It's important for us to do what they did, which was to remind ourselves who it is we're living subject to, who it is that's in charge of our life. There are verses at the end of your study sheet on this point that I won't go into, but there are verses, there are truths in the Scripture that we need to remind ourselves of when it feels like the bottom has fallen out or we're going up a hill and the hill never ends and it doesn't look like it gets any better. So just like then, Scripture is full of passages, whether it's First Chronicles or others, where God has stated things and we remind ourselves God who can't lie has made promises to us and we can count on them. So when ch times are challenging for us, just like them, we need to get a focus that's back on God, that's not just on our circumstances and its challenges, but that goes all the way back to God and his promises. There's a great line in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, which Frodo has been lamenting to his mentor Gandalf, and he says... Uh, I'm not going to go into all the story, but he does, just says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish I didn't have anything to do with what's going on. And Gandalf sagely replies, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. We, we don't determine the time we live in. We don't determine the conditions of the time and the place we live in. All we're doing is we're deciding, believers, Christians, God's children how we're going to respond to the setting God's put us in. That's our decision. Richard John Newhouse said, hope is still a virtue and despair is still a sin. So we don't want to fall into the sin of despair, which is unbelief. So if I'm a Christian and I've read my Bible and I know some of the things God has said, I know God's always with me. I know Christ will never leave me, never forsake me. I know that the Holy Spirit is always at work. I know that all God's promises will be fulfilled. I know where I'm going and I know how I'm getting there. What I don't know is some of the things along the way. But that's okay. I'm trusting a God who cannot lie. He's made promises. He's going to keep the promises. We can count on that. So just like them, you're going to have times when you need to remember who it is I've trusted, who it is I serve, who it is at whose pleasure I'm living my life, and what it is that I I owe, and I don't say this legalistically, but as children who love our Father, we want to be faithful to our Father. And as those whom Christ has saved, we want to be faithful to our Savior. Faithfulness is the thing. And that's one of the things this book shows up. Faithfulness is the thing. In the genealogies, I'll just mention a couple other things. In chapter 2, you see Jacob brought up. And this is where just little points, there's just little gems in these books that if you don't read the genealogies, you'll miss them. So in chapter 2, Jacob, and through most of these books, he's referenced, I believe, it 17 times. 15 times he's not called Jacob. He's called Israel. 
Why do you think that is? He's called Israel, not Jacob. So you remember Jacob, the name at birth means the heel grabber, the supplanter. Jacob represents the deceitful guy that's going to get what he wants by cheating or conniving, right? But who's Israel? Well, Israel's the name God gives him. Israel is the prince of God. And so when the chronicler's looking back at, at this group's forefather, they, he's not called Jacob, he's called Israel. And it's that thought that in God's transformative power, somebody who was this deceptive supplanter, by God's grace and God's doing, was made a prince of God. And that's their forebear. That if God could do that in the life of Jacob, he could do it in their lives as well. So simply by the name being used in Chronicles, it's this element of hope. It's God's redemptive power at work in Jacob's life, transforming him from the supplanter to the prince of God. Chapter 6 is the longest of the genealogies. Chapter 6 is about the tribe of Levi. By the way, the genealogies, they're not in chronological order necessarily. They're not also in birth order. So there's method in the madness of why one tribe is brought up when it is. When Levi comes up, it's the longest chapter in the genealogies. And why might that be? Again, we're asking ourselves, why? Why this? Why this way? It's because when the people have returned, remember, they left faithless. They left, and we'll see that, they left because of faithlessness. So what does God want from them when they've returned? He wants faithfulness. And what does that mean for this covenant nation? It means they come to God. We, we talked about this last week. They come to God on God's terms. And what does that require? That requires the priesthood the sacrifices and the offerings, and the temple. They'd lost all of it because of faithlessness. It's required when they come back. And so you see the priesthood and the temple being this huge point of emphasis in First and Second Chronicles, and that's for a reason. And I'll let you look at, uh, look at those references later on uh, promises that we need to take into consideration when it looks like the bottom has fallen out. Uh, the second point I want to make is... Uh, sound like it's against the grain. So on one hand, here's an account that's meant to encourage people. God's at work, and you're where he wants you, and you can do this thing, so just be faithful. So that's an encouragement. But here's this other thing. You've got this, this book is punctuated with pointed warnings for faithlessness. Very pointed warnings, and it's repeated, and you see them over and over and over again. And why might that be? So if I'm the group that's returning, I'm returning because God disciplined us. Why did he discipline us? Because we weren't faithful. So the chronicler is also pulling up these points from the history where there was faithlessness. And he's telling you what happened. So these are these warnings. And you see a few of them in the genealogies. You see some of them later as well. But here's a few instances. In chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about the tribe of Reuben. So it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. 
my phone was on, so if my wife called, I would remember. But my tone is telling me to turn it off. So when the Jews heard this story, this sounds a lot like Ham, the son of Noah, dishonoring his father, and Ham and his line suffering the consequences because of that. And here is Reuben, and God says he was the firstborn, but he doesn't get the honor of the firstborn. And if you read the end of Genesis, you know that Jacob slash Israel makes the two Egyptian-born sons of Joseph the replacement for Reuben. They get the double portion. They become, they take the place of the eldest son. They get the double portion, Joseph's descendants do, because Reuben forfeited it. Why? He dishonored his father. He was faithless, and he suffered, and guys, all his heirs suffered for it as well. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 25. The language is significant. It's speaking of the tribe of Manasseh, and it's recording the account of the Assyrian invasion of the land in 722 when they took the whole northern tribes out. But listen to why. Excuse me. Manasseh broke faith with the God of their fathers and hoard, there's a good Old Testament word for you, hoard after the gods of the peoples of the land, so idolatry, they gave themselves up to idolatry, people of the land whom God had destroyed, so they broke faith, so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, And he took them into exile, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These were all the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. Why did they go? So this tells why those tribes went into captivity along with the northern kingdom because they broke faith. They were faithless in their covenant relationship to God. If you look at the kingdom of Judah in chapter 9, verse 1, and this was their direct, this was uh, these folks, the people that he was writing for, their direct ancestors. And maybe some of them, in fact, who lived through the deportation, because some of them did. Uh, Ezra talks about them in a different setting. Uh, Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Why did the southern kingdom, why did I go into captivity? Why did my parents go into captivity? Because the nation of Judah proved faithless to God. They, they didn't honor him, and they suffered the consequences. Uh, pointedly, King Saul, this is very interesting, in chapter 10, when you read 1 Samuel, you're reading mostly, it's, it's a bit of both, but it's Saul is on the throne. So you're reading Saul's story. And there's chapter after chapter of Saul's story. David's part of the, a lot of that, but Saul's king. But guys, when you get to 1 Chronicles, it says nothing about the reign of Saul, only how he died. There's a 40-year reign, and all it tells you in the narrative is how he died on Mount Gilboa with his sons. That's the record the chronicler gives Saul. So it says, uh, verse 13, so Saul died. Why did Saul die? For his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. He did not keep the command of the Lord. He consulted a medium. He didn't seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Why did Saul's life end that way? He broke faith with God. He proved faithless to the God who'd made him king in the first place. Excuse me. This, This one usually draws sympathy 
This is 1 Chronicles 13. Uh, and we, we tend to miss what's, what's going on. But <clears throat> David gets settled in his new capital, Jerusalem. And he wants God's presence there, the blessing of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not in Jerusalem. So he's going to have it brought up to his new capital city because he loves the Lord. This is all a good desire. But listen to what happens. It's chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. So they've got the Ark. They're bringing it back. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah, so he's helping transport the Ark, put out his hand to take hold of the Ark for the oxen stumbled. So it's on a cart, oxen stumble. The ark, it looks like maybe it's going to fall off. And Uzzah, no doubt, loves the Lord. He cares about God's things. So he puts his hand out on the holy ark, the place of God's presence. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died before God. Guys, most of the time when people read this account, they're like, poor Uzzah. <laughs> He's just trying to help God out. What's God do? He doesn't even slap his hand. He kills him. He kills him on the spot. And most people read the story, we're like, oh, the poor guy. What's going on? But consider this. So how, how are the Jews bringing the Ark of the Covenant into God's city? So if you go back, go back to 1 Samuel there's an occasion where the Ark of the Covenant is treated as a talisman and the Jews bring it out to battle and the Philistines win and the Philistines take it. God curses them and they say, hey, we better give this thing back. And what do they do? They don't know anything about the Ark. So what do they do? They put it on a cart drawn by some oxen. These are the godless, ignorant, Gentile Philistines. And they, they do only what seems like a good idea in their mind. And what do the Jews do with God's holy ark? They treat it just like the Philistines. No better. God's holy. He says, you treat me as holy. And they're like, you're a trunk. And we're putting you on a cart. And we'll get the, you know, we'll get the, the critters out of the stall. And they're going to pull you in. And God strikes them down because they didn't treat him as holy. They proved faithless. Now, this will come up later. I think it's in chapter 15. David, and, and when this happens, David is angry. The text says he's angry because he thought God was all in. The nation is there celebrating, and God interrupts it with this death. And David will say two chapters later, it happened because we didn't do it the way God told us to. So when the ark is successfully brought in later, it's the Levites with the poles carried on their shoulder, exactly as God had said, the ark was to be carried. But this is another instance where Uzzah, no doubt, he means well, but he's treating God as common, no better, if you will, than the Gentiles, the Philistines. And God says, I won't have it. I won't be treated that way. I'll mention this one last <clears throat> to make a point. The, uh, let's see, yeah. Uh, I'll mention in a minute, uh, David and Solomon are treated very differently in Chronicles than in Samuel and Kings. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But one of David's great sins against God was he took a census. And, and actually, uh, Samuel and Chronicles both record this, and they record it a little differently. So in Chronicles' case, 
the census is taken, and guys, we don't understand all the reasons why, but, but this was a sin. And David knew it was a sin. And so God says, I'm not having this, and, and there's going to be uh, trouble because of this. And so it's recorded sort of against David, if you will. It's a negative. But I think the reason that this act of faithlessness on David's part is included is for this reason. When God brings judgment against the people for David's sinful census, when you read the narrative, the angel of the Lord is slaying Jews, just like he did in Egypt in the Exodus account. And David goes up onto the hill above Jerusalem proper, and that's where the angel of the Lord with his outdrawn sword is located. And so David slaughters Arana's oxen and he burns them as a sacrifice right there on that spot. David buys it. And why do we care about that? So the census starts bad. It's a negative on David. Most of David's negatives are not included. This one is. But when the story takes us to the end, where is the offering? Where's the peace made? It's made right on the site that Solomon's temple will be built. So where that sacrifice, where that incident ends, they see that providentially David sinned on one hand, but in God's providence, the place that the angelic destruction stopped is the land David buys, and that's where the temple is eventually built. It will be the place where all the future offerings are going to be made. So even in that sense, the thought is David's sin didn't prevent God or his promises or God's work from being accomplished. God even used that failure to accomplish his ends. So it's still this point of encouragement. Let me just move to the third point. Uh, this is related to David and his line. And <clears throat> um, when you read, again, if you read the accounts in 1st and 2nd Kings, excuse me, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, and it talks about the life of David, it, it shows the warts. So in 2nd uh, Samuel, it shows David's great sin, you know, adultery and then murder. And when you get to 1 Kings near the end of Solomon's life, it shows his absolutely wicked disregard for God and his faithlessness. You know, he's setting up the idle places of worship for his foreign wives. It shows their warts, their great faithlessness. But guess what you see when you get to 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles? None of that's recorded. None of it's recorded. It, it's positive. Apart from the census thing for David, everything's positive. And in 2 Chronicles, when you get to the life of Solomon, none of that's recorded of him either. And then you say, well, why is that? We know what he did because it's recorded in the other narratives, but it's not recorded here. So guys, that's when we put on our thinking cap, right? Lord, why did you exclude that from this narrative? Why? What's your take on this? I think we can say at least in part this. The chronicler, God through the author of this, was showing that the sins of his chosen kings were not going to disrupt his program. And you remember, God had made promises. This is really, really important. This is what you see throughout. 
We, want, we really want to take our call to faithfulness seriously. That's what we want. And guys, when you stand before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, you will be judged, having nothing to do with sin, you will be judged for faithfulness. You're a steward. You've been gifted time and abilities and callings and all kinds of things. You'll answer as a steward for faithfulness. You're not going to answer for sin. For faithfulness. Your sins have been taken care of, right? Um, is it Philippians or Colossians 2? I think it's Colossians 2, where the, uh, Paul writes and he says, it's as if all your sins were written down and were nailed to the cross. Why would that image be important? Because the charges against the crucified were written and were on the cross. So we remind ourselves as children of God through faith in Christ your sins, every one of them, past, present, and future, it's as if they were recorded before you were born and they were nailed to Jesus' cross so that in his death, every charge against you was checked off, it's covered. So we don't give an account for sins, but when we go to see Christ, when we stand before him, we give an account for faithfulness. So did you do what I wanted you to do? Were you faithful with the time and the place I put you? That's the real question. And I'm losing my place. Oh, sorry. So this is the reason. So in 1 Chronicles 17, God records again the same promise he gave in 2 Samuel 7. So in 2 Samuel 7, it's called the Davidic Covenant. And it's this promise that God, David wouldn't build God a house, God would build him a house. And that his heir would be king and would rule over a kingdom that would last forever. And it's reiterated. None of David's faults, save the census, and none of Solomon's. Why? Well, because God says, my program is still going forward, and your sins are covered, and I'm not taking them into account as I proceed with my program. So this is 1 Chronicles 17, when Nathan the prophet spoke to David. He said, uh, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, you're going to die. I'll raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for me. Now, in the immediate, this is Solomon, but Solomon merely becomes an image of Christ to come. He will build a house for me. It's Solomon, of course, who builds the temple. And I will establish his throne forever. Now, Solomon didn't rule forever. I will be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. I'll not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, King Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And this language gets repeated again. The failures of David and Solomon had nothing to do with the fulfillment of the promise. The promise was still going to be kept. So the Jews coming in, they know, coming back from captivity, they know the promise of God that a, a, someone from the line of David would rule as king is still good. The sins of the former kings has not disrupted that line. It's still going to occur. In the initial building period of the temple as well, when they come back, you see this in uh, Ezra and also in Zechariah. It is David's direct descendant, Zerubbabel, who's the governor. That's David's direct descendant. He's not a king. And the nation, guys, at this point, it's about 30 miles long, north to south. It's called Yehud by the Persians. It's very small. It would have been insignificant in the Persian Empire. But David's direct heir is there 
ruling as governor, but certainly a promise of things yet to come. Now, this is something else you'll see, not necessarily in the genealogies here. When we get to the New Testament genealogies of the Lord Jesus, the lines of David's sons, Solomon and Nathan, are brought forth right up to Joseph and Mary, to Jesus' human parents, Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his stepfather. The genealogies continue right on through because God wants us to know the promise made to David who sinned greatly, but whose sins were covered, the promise was still good, and coming down through the ages, through the 400 years of silence, we still see that David's line was intact, and Jesus is the direct descendant of King David. That that future rule of an eternal kingdom with the king that reigns forever from David's line is going to be fulfilled. Now, I love that David's sins are not recorded in Chronicles. So, we know the rest of the story with David, right? Psalm 51, well, you remember even in the narratives themselves, David is approached about his sin, he's convicted, he repents, and God does what? God forgives him. God forgave his great sins. Remember, those were both death penalties, by the way. And he didn't suffer death. God said he forgave him, he, he would keep his life, and he'd go on. Now, there was suffering because of his sin, to be sure. But his sins were covered and God forgave him. And so guys, when we talk about when we stand before the Lord, what does that look like? Um, Your sins aren't going to be brought up. So you remember uh, uh, Psalm, maybe 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, a place that doesn't exist. When we stand before God, it's not for our sins. Those have been covered in total by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus. It's, it's for faithfulness that we'll give an account when we see Christ, but not for our sins. So I love that David's sins and Solomon's sins are not recorded here because they've been forgiven and God had passed over them. Uh, let me ask you something too. If, if uh, our name was in that genealogy, or if God's writing a genealogy today, or if God's recording the details of your life or mine today, what would it say you know, instead of Reuben, if, if you or I are in Reuben's spot, what would it say about your life or mine? Would it be positive? Would it represent faithfulness? You know, even if it was a single description, because some of them, that's all they are, you know. It's, read through the genealogy, it might say a single thing, and you're like, wow, summary of the person's life. If you or I were recorded there, or if we're looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ, what, what might the genealogy of our life say, uh, positive or negative? What would we want it to say? Uh, when we stand before Christ, what do we want him to be able to say? Again, regarding faithfulness. Faithfulness is the, the key image and challenge here. Uh, David's sins and failures, Solomon's, they did bring real heartache, guys, in the narratives themselves. They brought huge heartache. And not just to those two men, they brought heartache and loss and death to many other people. It's, it uh, would be really hard to live with. God's programs still go through, but the losses certainly are very real nonetheless. The last thing I'll mention just very briefly, winding down, is the priesthood and the temple. When you read in the book of Ezra, when that first group of Jews goes back, what's the first thing they cooperate to rebuild? It's not the temple, and it's not cooperatively, it's not their homes, it's the altar. 
It's the altar. Because they understand as soon as they come back into the land, God's restoring us relationally. And what does that require of us? That requires the priesthood and the offerings. So the temple is going to take much longer to build. But the altar is put there first so that their covenant relationship is restored right away. And that's why you see the priesthood and the temple so fully emphasized. So guys, in this 29 chapters long, five chapters are wholly about the temple and the priesthood. Another five are partly about the temple and the priesthood. Because everything is about interacting with God in covenant faithfulness. And so, you know, it's interesting here too, the arrangement of the courses or the orders for the rotation of the priesthood. If you go to the New Testament to Luke's gospel and you want to try and figure out what month Jesus was really born, do you know where you go? You go to 1 Chronicles because it lists the rotation of the priesthood. And when you know what course Zechariah was in, that's one of the ways, that's one of the frames biblically that people try and figure out when would Zechariah have been in the temple? When was Elizabeth pregnant? What's the relationship of that to Mary being pregnant? It goes back to a list in 1 Chronicles. So David, it goes to the, it tells all the extent which David provided the plans for the temple, almost all the materials that would be used in building the temple, but it was also David who arranged the priesthood, the doorkeepers, the rotation. The temple was this huge administrative project David laid all that out. It, that's recorded in First Chronicles. So it's really about we're establishing or reestablishing covenant faithfulness, and that requires the priesthood and the temple to be front and center. Um, I would say, too, just uh, to close, guys, our c culture, there's some pushback, but we live in a time and a place in which um, faithfulness has been jettisoned, uh, loyalty has been jettisoned, and I guess I would just close with this. Jesus said, when we get near the time of the end, he said the love of many would grow cold. The love of many would grow cold. And what you'll see in your life or anybody else's, it's what you love, that's what you're loyal to. It's who you love, that's who you're loyal to. If we look at our lives and we see we're not faithful, it's because we love something else. If we love the Lord, we'll be faithful to the Lord. If we love our spouse or our children or our parents or those in the body of Christ, we'll exemplify faithfulness there because faithfulness follows love. Love engenders faithfulness. So God doesn't say the first great commandment is to be faithful. He says it's to love Him. If we love God, we'll be faithful to God because faithfulness follows our affections, the affections of our heart and our love. Okay? I've gone off my course just a little bit, and there's some other uh, verses on your, your study sheet you can look at later. But if you would, uh, why don't you stand with me? We'll close here, and I want to read from 1 Chronicles 29. This is a great, great passage, by the way. This is a great memory verse. Uh, when you read through that this week, as I'm sure you will, uh, this is a great passage to uh, commit to memory or at least think about. Let's read. Therefore... David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. The kingdom and 
above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen.